Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. The travel restrictions imposed by President Trump meant a confusing last few weeks for refugee families fleeing war and students in New England here on visas. When I left them, I, I said to them that it, I'm not sure that I can arrive to the United States. Maybe I, I will deport and I'll see you again. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. Reporters for our project Facing Change, charting the rapidly shifting demographics of our region, will update us with voices in opposition to the executive orders and those in favor. Uh, the whole theory is he wants to figure a new way to vet people. And one of the problems, so you can't vet the way you would if you were getting somebody coming from a regular European country. We'll also find out how the region's cities and towns might fare during a Trump administration aimed at punishing so-called sanctuary cities. And a program at a rapidly diversifying high school teaches tolerance at just the right time. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. The first few weeks of the Trump administration have created a lot of confusion for thousands of New Englanders and their loved ones overseas. A ban on travel for refugees and all those traveling from a small group of mostly Muslim countries meant that students studying here on visas might not be able to return to their classrooms in America. It meant long journeys for families fleeing the Civil War in Syria. Now a federal appeals court has upheld a lower court's ruling that blocks that travel ban. The president has said he will appeal the ruling, and it now could be heard by the currently eight-member U.S. Supreme Court. This news has been welcomed by many immigrant and refugee communities, but it also highlights the confusing back-and-forth nature of current immigration policy. Our team's been covering the changing demographics and influx of refugees into New England for a series called Facing Change, and they've been following the impact of new immigration orders in the states. I'm joined now by reporters Jill Kaufman, Cassandra Bassler, and Emily Corwin. Welcome to Next. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Hi, John. Jill, let me start with you. Uh, you've been covering the stories of international students studying here in New England on F-1 visas, and you found it's been really difficult for them to know whether they could travel back and forth. Many were warned by their universities, by uh, lawyers, don't be outside the country after the inauguration, but nobody really knew it was going to happen. Nobody knew it was going to happen, and you talked to students who really were concerned about the possibility of being out of the country uh, when the orders took hold, and you found a student uh, who fell into exactly that category, and, and he has quite a tale to tell. He does. I found him because of um, because of the original story I did, and I had I spoke with a lot of professors. Um, the principal investigators on a lot of research grants at universities, the PIs as they're known, those are, end up being the advisors to PhD students, uh, PhD students in any field, I mean, from the arts to the sciences. But in a particular field, the STEM field, science and technology and, and math, 
um, a lot of students, uh, international students, above and beyond the American students in the in the in the graduate programs. So these PIs were paying attention to what kind of research uh, they had to get done, what their um, deliverables were on their grants. Without these students in place, they can't keep uh, following up some you know to some degree on the on the research they're doing and have promised uh, the funder that they do right. So there's a business development in that. I met a professor who didn't want to talk at the time. When that professor's student, Mohsen Hosseini, couldn't get back on January 28th, the day after Trump signed that executive order, that's when he contacted me. And so began Mawson's uh, journey of trying to get on an airplane. So tell me about that journey and some of what he went through as he was trying to get back from Iran to the United States, specifically back to Massachusetts. He goes to the airport. Um, he's been home for winter break for a couple of weeks. He goes to the airport in Tehran. He uh, has a ticket to begin with, and he's not issued a boarding pass. He also has with him, John, in his hand, a copy of the court order from a federal uh, judge in Boston who put a stay on President Trump's executive order saying nobody from seven largely Muslim countries was allowed to travel into the U.S. for the next 90 days at least. And John, as you know, and as listeners probably know, there was a lot of confusion over that first weekend of who was not allowed to travel into the U.S. and who was. Mawson was flying to Boston, where, as I said, the federal judge had said, you know, we're going to put a stay on uh, this executive order. People can fly to Boston for a limited time. The airlines in Tehran would not recognize that judge's order, and he didn't know why, and UMass didn't know why, and the attorneys didn't know why. Um, what people didn't know, John, in those first few days is that the same day that Trump signed that executive order, I think it's the Bureau of Consular Affairs had revoked those visas. And there was no communication with the airlines in Tehran about the injunction. And if an airline flies uh, someone who's considered illegal into the country, they are, are heavily fined. So they were not going to take any chances. So then how did Mohsen Husseini eventually make his way back to the United States? He tried three times to get on the airplane. The first time I just described. The second time, he went back with um, a team of lawyers at his back, basically. He's helped by UMass, um, and, and UMass is contacting members of Congress. And still, he couldn't get on the flight the second time. The third time, uh, it's, it's a combination of things that happened. Lufthansa Airlines, for a very brief period of time, they put on their website with their travel advisory that if you are legally documented to come to the U.S. and you qualify, we will get you into Boston because that was the airport at the time. Lufthansa would get you in, fly you in. They would issue a boarding pass, and that's the key thing. So behind the scenes, behind Hosseini's uh, scenes, uh, is UMass and members of Congress and everybody paying attention and saying, we've got to get a ticket. And the first uh, kids who came in, may I call them kids, students, PhDs, brilliant people, uh, came in. They were Harvard and MIT students, maybe somebody from Worcester Polytech. And then the next flight or within the next few flights, uh, Mohsen Husseini was in. And that was Saturday afternoon that he landed. Not only did he land, um, he landed and it took maybe half an hour to get through customs. There was no hang-up. There was no hang-up from Tehran to Frankfurt. There was no hang-up from Frankfurt to Boston. And and all along the way, nobody knew that he would actually finally walk you know, through the gate and jump in a car and return to Amherst. What did he tell you when you when you talked to him upon his return? What, what were his feelings about this ordeal he went through? His life's work right now is taking place in a lab at Amherst, Massachusetts, and he's invested a lot of time already, almost two years, and a lot of money. And he wants to be able to go back to Tehran and teach what he's learning, which has to do with circuit board development and computer engineering and things that are beyond my scope of understanding. But it's not, it's not happening right now in Tehran in the way that he's learning here. He went home for a particular reason, John. 
not just to take a vacation to see his mom and dad. He went home to get married. <laughs> so he went home to get married. And, you know, this happens. So, you know, the nice news is he got to see his wife for a little bit. But he said he doesn't trust that his visa is actually valid. He's not going to leave the country anytime soon. Uh, his wife now, Mary, uh, he says is her name. She is a uh, works in a biology lab. She has her master's degree. She's not a student right now. Her uh, interview for her visa to come join him as a spouse was canceled the same day Trump signed that order, January 27th. So they're waiting again 90 days uh, or 90 days from that date uh, to see if she will get another interview to come. If not, they've decided he will stay put and do his work. His visa expires in 2018. It's unclear if he'll get another one. Other students, bigger picture, John, be, you know, to be, think more broadly about this, other students' visas uh, expire at the end of this school year for them. That's 2017. One, will they get new visas? Two, can they stay in the country without the visas? And the universities are, you know, are key in the, this. They're sponsoring them in some way. Um, they have to be documented here at the universities. So there's a lot of stakeholders, um, and there's a lot of money to be, to be made, to be lost, uh, and there's a lot of heartache uh, as well. I want to turn to Cassandra Bassler, a reporter for WSHU, who's been following a different story, but a story that also includes quite a bit of travel heartbreak. Cassie, you've been following a, a Syrian family that was caught up in the travel ban because they're refugees. Actually, they were granted asylum status, but it was actually a different process for them to come to the United States. What happened was the father of the family uh, Fadi Kassar actually had to fly to South America and cross the border uh, in Mexico, and he was detained and um, was able to get asylum status granted to him after he was paired up with a lawyer. So he didn't go through the actual channels that most refugees who come here go through where they apply to the United Nations while they're still abroad um, and then get access to the United States. He just had to do what he could to get here and get his family um, back into the country so he actually arrived in 2014, um, was granted asylum status, and came to Connecticut to live with his brother here in Milford. It took two years for his two daughters and his wife um, to get permission to join him here in the United States. And they were en route from their apartment in Jordan to the United States when the executive order went into effect. Uh, they were stuck in an airport in the Ukraine, actually, and then were told to go back home to Jordan, where they had already sold all of their um, furniture and things in their apartment that they had there because they weren't expecting to return, obviously. Um, and that's when uh, the family here in Connecticut called their congressman. And the U.S. Senators, Chris Murphy and uh, Richard Blumenthal, actually had to work with the State Department to get the family turned around. Cassie, you've been following uh, the stories of refugees and asylum seekers coming to Connecticut. What is it you're hearing from uh, the people who are resettling these folks who are coming from war-torn places like, like Syria? What are they saying and how has their work been affected by these very uncertain last few weeks? Obviously, they're concerned that the people who were slated to come here over the past year are not going to be able to come. Um, they were expecting several Syrian families that are not going to be arriving, um, even though they have hundreds of volunteers here in Connecticut who have raised money, who have gotten donations and are ready to put up and um, welcome people who are coming here. I, I want to turn to Emily Corwin, who's been following in New Hampshire uh, some of these same stories, but also talking to people who have a very different view of what immigration and refugees mean in America. Emily, you've been talking to some, some supporters of Donald Trump and his travel bans. 
That's right. I, I spent the morning um, uh, last week at a diner in Derry, which is a very Republican part of New Hampshire. And it's a diner where candidates do a lot of campaigning in you know presidential primary season. So I stopped in to, to sort of check in with people. And, you know, overall, there were a lot of Trump supporters there. And people largely told me, like, they are thrilled that he is delivering uh, on, as they put it, delivering on his campaign promises. And that, you know, shaking things up in the United States, around the world, that that was sort of something he promised. And they were pleased to see that. You know, people were telling me it's it's not a Muslim ban because it doesn't include all of the majority Muslim countries. And, you know, some people, a lot of people told me, it's just 90 days or for the refugees, it's just 120 days. Like, what's the big deal? Um, it's just a pause. And so here's a here's a retired ad salesman named James Hennessy who, who sort of put it to me this way. Uh, the whole theory is he wants to figure a new way to vet people. And one of the problems, if you came from Syria, chances of getting records of your background are probably pretty slim. So you can't vet the way you would if you were getting somebody coming from a regular European country. To be clear, uh, I, I, I checked on PolitiFact what they had to say about Syrian documents. And um, they report, PolitiFact reports, that Syrians actually have more access to more documents than many other refugee groups. Um, and, and talking to James Hennessy, he said things a, a lot of people at this diner said, which is that um, he isn't really sure what the vetting process consists of now. But nevertheless, he does feel certain that the executive order was necessary. Um, basically that we need to vet the vetting process and we need to stop immigration from these places while we do that. Did you hear anything from these Trump supporters in New Hampshire that really, really surprised you? Well, there's a lot of diversity, uh, even among people who uh, support, for example, this executive order. There were a lot of different reasons they gave for their support. And so, well, people like James Hennessy were telling me that, you know, he, he thinks immigration is OK and uh, it's it's a matter of keeping terrorists out by vetting the vetting process. Um, other people were concerned about Muslims writ large, about new cultures coming into the country. Um, so I, I talked to a woman who didn't want to give her name because she thought she might uh, have problems at work for talking about this with the media. But, but I thought what she had to say was interesting. You know, females are being attacked all over Europe, in Germany, in, in Denmark, because they had a blanket, come on in, everybody. And all of a sudden you have a mass mass influx of people of of all over the, with a whole different culture, women are getting attacked all over the place because of a different culture. It's possible that this woman is talking about uh, an incident called the Cologne attack, but certainly there's no data to show that refugees or Muslims are any more likely to act violently than anyone else. Um, but she seemed to think that that there was, and and that that is why she supported Trump's. Um, so-called ban. So, um, you know, I just I'd heard a lot of different things from a lot of people who sort of at the end of the day are behind Trump's immigration order. I guess I'm wondering, Emily, what you're hearing from any of the political class about this. Is there any widespread support? Are you hearing anything from either municipal or state leaders about how this immigration ban or this, this series of orders might be positively or negatively impacting the state? Um, I mean, I think New Hampshire, which 
is a pretty purple state overall. I think, you know, what you hear from lawmakers here pretty well reflects what you hear around the country. Um, but our new governor, a Republican, Chris Sununu, has been uh, pretty quiet about this immigration order. Aside from talking to Trump supporters of the immigration ban, you've also been talking to people in the refugee resettlement community, people who've been part of the Manchester, New Hampshire community for a while. Right. I I met up with a fellow from Somalia who was a refugee himself and works for an organization that helps support refugees in Manchester, New Hampshire. And it was an interesting story because he was telling me, you know, he has two siblings who were stuck because of the ban. They've been working on getting visas for two years. They had their interview for February 6th. It got canceled. And he was pretty down about that. But he told me that his his attitude is that he is part he's an american citizen and therefore america is welcoming because he is welcoming and america you know is multicultural because he's muslim and he showed me these uh, cards that students from a local elementary school had sent and they were saying you know welcome to the united states we we're a welcoming place there's no war here um you can like live a free and happy life. And he read me this card out loud and he said that it's these things that make him certain that he is welcome in this country. And he reads these cards, he said, not just to himself, but he reads them to the people he works with, the refugees who are brand new, who are coming in, who are hearing words like the ones that some of the people we, you know, played just a moment ago. They hear those things and they are fearful. And he says he reads them these cards and he says, you know what, they, people do want us here. Dear friend, welcome to the USA. You will have food, shelters, and this is a free country. There is no war here. You know, people have every, every right to do whatever you want to. We have an army that will protect us all, even if you, even all, even you. I hope you enjoy the USA sincerely. Hmm. Emily Corwin uh, is the reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio, Cassandra Bassler for WSHU, and Jill Kaufman, New England Public Radio. They're covering uh, this evolving story for our series, Facing Change. Thank you all so much. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Yeah, thanks, John. When a community decides to welcome refugees, the school system is often expected to take on an important part of the planning process. That was the case in Northampton this past year as the small western Massachusetts city prepared for the arrival of dozens of families. That work has continued despite some of the recent executive orders. New England Public Radio's Nancy Cohen has this report. Some children are collecting socks, soap, toothpaste, and toothbrushes to help the refugees settle into a new home. And at Leeds Elementary, Alexandra Roach is helping children think about ways to make the refugees feel at home. This word is welcome in Kirundi, and it's kaza. 
Kurundi is the language of Burundi, where some of the refugees slated for Northampton would come from. You could color them. Maybe your teacher would like to hang them around. Roach is a volunteer with AmeriCorps Vista. She's working with Catholic Charities, which will help the refugees get settled. Roach is leading more than a dozen workshops in Western Mass to help children understand what it's like to be new. She starts by reading a book. The main characters come to the U.S. from other countries. Back home, I knew the language. My friends and I talked all day long. Here there are new words. I can't understand them. The sounds are strange to my ears. Roach asks the children to reflect on their own experiences of being new and to draw pictures about it. I drew a girl that looks very nervous because when I go to a new place, I feel very nervous. When I first came here for first grade, I was I was really scared. I'm like, and I got here, I'm just like, ooh. You kind of don't know where to go. Uh-huh. Those are third graders Jack Corey and Allie Britton. Roach asks, what can they do to help newcomers feel a part of the school? Levy Hammerland and Ellie Chambers have some ideas. You can, like, invite them to play, like, basketball or something at recess. Well, you could ask if they wanted to sit next to you at lunch. Fifth grader Ava Madow wants to know the best way to greet the refugees when they first arrive. Should we throw a party, just like, yay, welcome, or just like, show them around? Good question. So the people coming, they're all very different from each other, just as we're all different from um, each other here. So some people, when they get here, will be um, open to parties. Some people will be more quiet and um, nervous and unsure. We are going to try to feel it out when they arrive. Since Trump's executive order and legal action against it, it's not known when the refugees will arrive, but the superintendent in Northampton, John Provost, says the school district is still committed to helping them resettle, and he has ideas for making the parents feel a part of the schools. Such as providing interpretation for meetings and making sure that all the communications are um, understandable to the parents. But I, I think there's something that goes beyond technique here, which is spirit. We want to have a district where all parents and all students feel welcome. The children are more than ready. Like, is there a possibility that they'll come to our school? That's fifth grader Noah Dauby valois who has some understanding of what's going on beyond Northampton. It's been a little bit of hard because of, like, what some things have happened around the world and, um, like, the new laws that have been made. As the third graders get ready to go home for the day, their teacher, Laura Ginsburg Peltz, leads them in singing goodbye in the languages of their families. Bella? Portuguese. Okay, and that's also a language from your family, Portuguese. So you're going to lead this one, right? Ciao, ciao, mis amigos, ciao, ciao, mis If children who are refugees do settle here, these children can't wait to add new languages to their repertoire and new friends to their school. Okay, another language? Which one did you want to do? Uh, French. That's Nancy Cohen from New England Public Radio reporting. Coming up, another target of President Trump's immigration orders is the so-called sanctuary city. We'll look at how New England cities and towns are affected. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, 
who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. At the White House press briefing on Wednesday, Press Secretary Sean Spicer said that Donald Trump plans to make good on another immigration-related executive order, the one that cuts off funds to municipalities that refuse to detain undocumented immigrants, so-called sanctuary cities. the end of the day, this order is about two things. One, keeping our city safe, and two, um, respecting the hard-earned taxpayers who send their money to the federal government. And the president's going to do everything he can within the scope of the executive order to make sure that cities who don't comply with it, um, counties and other institutions that remain sanctuary cities don't get federal government funding in compliance with the executive order. Also on Wednesday, the Massachusetts cities of Chelsea and Lawrence, both home to large immigrant populations, filed suit against the president, saying the order violates the constitutional principles of federalism and separation of powers. The mayors of Boston and Hartford have said their cities won't comply with the orders, and despite federal threats, even smaller communities like Newton, Mass., are considering sanctuary city status. Here's city councilor and mayoral candidate Ruth Ann Fuller. I know the city of Newton has plenty of undocumented immigrants who live here or work here. So for those folks, we want to be crystal clear that we welcome you and you can interact with the police and you will be safe. Paul Giragos is the son of Syrian immigrants, and he says his family would have never been able to make Newton home without being welcomed. And he says that now is the time for local governments to take control. What Trump's shown in three weeks is that he doesn't um, respect the rule of law. So I think it's incumbent on local and state governments to take a stand. So it's finding other avenues to protect people from what could be unchecked power on his part. But not everyone in town thinks this makes sense. Tom Mountain is a chairman of the Newton Republican City Committee and was a Trump delegate. Mountain says that he believes the big turnout in favor of the ordinance is really a reflection of people unhappy with the outcome of the presidential election. Whether these people like it or not, whether they want to recognize it or not, there's a new sheriff in town, and his name is President Donald J. Trump. He's the 45th president of the United States, and he's going to be here for at least four years. Get used to it. Stop the tantrum. Stop this silly sanctuary city stuff, which has no relevance in Newton whatsoever. In a recent article in Governing Magazine, Journalist Alan Greenblatt writes that the fight over this executive order is just the first of many flashpoints to come between cities and the Trump administration. And he sees a further widening of the divide between metro areas and the rural parts of the country. Alan Greenblatt, welcome to Next. Hello, John. Thanks for having me. Let's start with this issue of sanctuary cities, uh, specifically the Donald Trump orders surrounding them. I'll ask you, Alan, why you think so many mayors, not just in New England here, but around the country, are defying these executive orders about cooperation with immigration officials? This cuts right to the heart of the political differences between mayors and and the Trump administration and the president himself. Big city mayors are the last remaining bastion of strength for Democrats, really. Uh, They control something like, I think it's 22 of the 25 largest cities, and you go on from there. Democrats are very dominant in the big cities, and their constituencies have a strong opinion on immigration issues that's opposite to the Trump position. They're pro-immigration, first of all. He's, He's more skeptical of it in general, and they're very much invested in tolerance and inclusion and making sure that their cities are open to newcomers, both from other countries and other states. So this is a real fight, but it's also a symbolic fight over values. 
So these values that have been in many ways symbolic are potentially going to really come to the fore here over the course of the next couple months as mayors have pledged to continue their policies of not detaining people based on on immigration status. How do you see that, Alan, playing out in cities around the country where you have mayors standing in direct opposition to the federal government and to this new administration? I mean, how, how do you think that that will will work in practice? Well, um, we've seen a lot of variation already, or at least some variation. You know, the mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh, immediately said he would maintain not only policies, but would harbor immigrants in City Hall itself if he had to. Uh, By contrast, in Miami, the mayor there said they would uh, do away with their sanctuary city policies, which I guess we should explain very briefly. It's a policy where local law enforcement agencies refuse Well, basically, they make decisions about which undocumented immigrants they point out or hand over to federal officials at the Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Uh, Sanctuary City basically means there are certain classes of crimes for which they won't hand over the offender, you know, traffic violations or just the fact of being undocumented itself. It's not that there's no cooperation between the federal and local level, but the local officials are saying, we don't want to... um, have someone have a minor traffic violation end up being deported for it. And the reason for that is not just, like I say, the values of inclusion and toleration and so forth, but just the idea of having cooperation with immigrant communities and minority communities in general. They don't want people being afraid to interact with law enforcement for fear of deportation. They want them to share information, to um, you know, perhaps act as witnesses in other cases, this kind of thing. And the FBI has actually had some data suggesting that sanctuary cities are are safer. Right now, it looks like mayors intend to stick to their guns, but it is going to vary. And it looks like the higher profile they are, in other words, the bigger the city, mayors of New York and Los Angeles, places like that, San Francisco, they're going to stick to their guns. And in part, it's because federal funding is less important to them. It's not that it's no money, but it's less of a share of their budgets than, say, a rural county in Arizona that might have a similar policy. Well, and here in Connecticut, a city like Hartford, for instance, which is on the edge of bankruptcy, it's been teetering for years. They're a sanctuary city. Uh, They want to resist this immigration order, but they could be very uh, much affected by a cut in federal funding. Lowell, Massachusetts, for instance, uh, it's another city not on great economic footing for quite some time, considering becoming a sanctuary city. There are real repercussions to the small and mid-sized communities, especially the struggling ones, Alan, if federal funds are cut off. We don't know how real the repercussions are going to be. There are a lot of legal questions in terms of how much the president can act to cut off funding. He's saying he'll cut off all federal funding. That's unlikely. If there's money tied directly to this policy, it could be a risk based on prior court decisions. So say law enforcement grants or money to house prisoners, it's unlikely that they could lose, say, education dollars. But that's not known. And the other thing is a lot of money that goes out from the federal government is through formulas in each state or each city gets a certain share. But a lot of it is competitive. So there's someone in some agency deciding whether Hartford's going to get this money or Lowell's going to get this money or McAllen, Texas is going to get the money. And you could see where there could be an informal but real effect where it's not said that it's because of sanctuary cities or some other policy fight, but it it could be that they're looked on less favorably. I, I want to ask you in a moment about the rural and urban divide that has really defined this most recent election and maybe America today. It's something we've talked with uh, with writer and historian Colin Woodard about uh, whether or not it's really 
urban versus rural in America today, but I, I want to first talk about um, urban versus suburban. In a lot of places in New England, the real battle is between the inner city, which is sometimes only a few square miles and bears a lot of the brunt of all of the social needs. It'll have the hospitals in it. It has a lot of non-taxable land. And then the surrounding suburbs have an awful lot of wealth and prosperity and, and sometimes the political power. I guess I'm wondering in this new political environment if you see uh, that divide or that battle raging even more between cities and their nearby suburban neighbors. I think the urban versus rural is going to be the bigger dynamic to watch, but fighting within metropolitan areas is certainly nothing new. And in terms of lobbying for money within a state, within the state legislature or in Congress, it's almost always the case that metropolitan areas have a hard time getting their act together and pulling together. Uh, but I think what we're going to find is that, you know, there are areas where the city doesn't have a good relationship with the legislature or maybe doesn't have a member of Congress and the suburbs do. In some cases, they are able to work together and they're going to put the suburban mayor forward as a spokesman for the area. So that will mean the big city mayors have to subsume their ego a little bit, maybe uh, take a back seat in terms of playing a public role and a lobbying role. But I think we will see this. I think the main geographic split is going to be urban versus rural, or you could say metropolitan versus rural. And I think the suburbanites now, you know, that's sort of an, an old dynamic that you're describing where the inner city has the problems, has the social welfare needs and so forth. But, you know, so many cities have had wonderful comebacks. They're the site of many new businesses. People are moving back into cities, both millennials and empty nesters. And so that old idea of the donut where the central city was kind of a an empty space politically and economically with the metropolitan area. That's that's no longer the case. I think suburbanites more and more, if not completely, understand that their fates are tied to the center city. So then how would you characterize this, this burgeoning metropolitan versus rural divide, the one that seems to have characterized the Donald Trump victory in 2016? Hillary Clinton won metropolitan areas with populations of a million and more, but lost everything else. So the population centers voted for Clinton and the less populous areas, both rural areas and smaller cities, supported Trump last year. And we've seen this divide in a lot of states as well. The bigger cities are doing much better economically. And right now, almost all the economic growth are in the major metropolitan areas. Half of the businesses started in the country since 2010 were in just 20 metropolitan areas. And rural areas are really struggling. We heard a lot about the white working class and economic anxiety. Uh, in the past year. And it's true. There's so many areas that had sort of what we would say an economic monoculture. In other words, they relied too much on one industry, whether it was the local plant or agriculture or mining or timber. And all those industries are either suffering or have become so automated that the good jobs aren't there. And the metro areas have the jobs, have the resources. I mentioned that Clinton had about one-seventh as many counties as Trump, but her counties represented 64 percent of the economy. So where do urban mayors go then for help if over the last eight years they've been able to rely on a good relationship with Washington and the Obama administration, and now maybe they're being cast out by a, a new administration? Is there a new type of, of urban or metropolitan cooperation that needs to uh, spring out of all this? You know, the big city mayors really had a special relationship with President Obama. It's because Republicans controlled Congress and he couldn't get a lot of his programs through or hardly any of his programs, really. And he turned to mayors to enact 
mandated paid sick leave benefits, minimum wage increases, uh, the My Brother's Keeper initiative, which was meant to help, empower, train, educate minority males, young males. Now, cities don't have that relationship with the White House. They don't have a lot of friends in Congress. I mean, the Democratic minority is mainly from the big metro areas. And, you know, they don't have a lot of friends in states. Most states right now are dominated by Republicans and state legislatures have not hesitated to preempt local governments on a wide range of things. Um, like, like say the minimum wage increases. The the headline one last year was Charlotte, North Carolina passing a anti-LGBT discrimination bill, which the state legislature overturned or you know, took away their authority from passing that kind of law. So cities are really on their own, and uh, they're going to struggle. On the other hand, you know, as I've been indicating, metropolitan areas is the growth area. So politically, cities will be very isolated. But in terms of the culture, they won't be. You know, you see this amicus brief from almost every major tech company in Silicon Valley fighting the latest immigration order. It, it will be more civil society and economic forces that ally with the big city mayors. And and let's not forget, we're talking about uh, a lot of people as well. I mean, Hillary Clinton may have lost most counties, but she won the popular vote by almost 3 million votes. So this is where there's so much tension in our politics right now. The way congressional lines are drawn, state legislative lines are drawn, often favor Republicans, whether through gerrymandering or just this natural effect of Democrats, so much living in just a few urban centers. And the Electoral College, as we've seen, favors less populous states over more urbanized, densely populated states. So then how do you see this playing out? I mean, I don't think that we're turning around the boat that has taken us to the point where more metropolitan areas are growing and are attracting more young people. That's the way not just the United States or our region has been going, but it's the way the entire world has been going. These these mega cities and metropolitan areas have been uh, growing for years. While that trend is happening, we see this other political trend with increasing power uh, in red states or rural states, places without large metropolitan areas. What does this look like, Alan, in, in 20 or 30 years, do you think? Well, I don't know how great my crystal ball is, but definitely this has been, like I say, a global trend. And in terms of economics, it seems like there's nothing you could do. That Just our economy is set up for knowledge workers to live closer together with each other. I mean, the great one of the great symbolic moves was GE, which moved from Connecticut to, to Boston with the CEO of General Electric saying when he left the company headquarters, he wanted to be challenged by an MIT graduate student and not by a deer in the woods. That's almost a caricature of what drives companies to major cities. That is going on, but at the same time, we have an administration that's highly skeptical of trade, highly skeptical of immigration, and so these policies could really affect how these cities operate. I don't know how much of a bet I'd want to put one way or another, whether these ongoing sort of macroeconomic demographic forces are going to triumph over the political forces. I guess we have, though, seen, even outside of the metropolitan areas, this move toward uh, a different kind of cultural space in some states versus others. I'll give you an example of uh, North Carolina. Our, our state of Connecticut here has been seen for years as a business-unfriendly state. It's a very expensive place to do business, and so companies have long moved out of Connecticut down to the North Carolina Triangle. But 
Then within the last couple of years, because of some of the social policies being enacted in North Carolina, many businesses are getting skittish. Maybe those knowledge workers don't want to work in a space where uh, the state government is putting some clamps on their personal freedoms. I wonder if that's a piece of it. And as we bring it back to our region, where we have six contiguous states that are blue and seem to, in some ways, share a common identity, not just of a a Democratic voting base, but also in a way to approach social issues. Do you see more regions like that around the country maybe blossoming, a a New England or a a California and Oregon that that stand apart from, from the rest of this country? Well, they're already collecting signatures in California for a ballot measure next year to secede from the union. So presumably that will either go nowhere or if it passes, will be meaningless. But that impulse is there. And I think this will, you know, further exacerbate the polarization of our politics. I mean, I'm a little bit skeptical. I don't know that many people who actually pick up and move because of a state's policies on gun control or abortion or gay rights or any of it. But what happens is that people end up in the little enclaves. So if you're a Democrat living in Kansas, you probably want to be living in Lawrence. The cities in Texas have become very Democratic. I mean, Hillary Clinton won Harris County, which includes Houston, by double digits. I I don't know if people will huddle together along the coasts or in California or whether some people are going to move to red states, you know, Democrats to help even out the vote or what. But definitely within states and within regions, too. I mean, there are neighborhoods that are very Democratic and others that are Republican. I live in St. Louis. We have very Republican suburbs and very Democratic suburbs. People do seem to want to be in these like-minded enclaves. Mm. And that's, yeah, that's probably not changing anytime soon. Alan Greenblatt, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. Alan Greenblatt is a staff writer for Governing Magazine. You can find a link to his article on the contentious dynamics between urban leaders and Donald Trump on our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a project at a rapidly diversifying New Hampshire high school brings immigrant and American-born students together. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Ten years ago, the demographics of New Hampshire and Concord High School were almost identical. Both were 93% white. While that number has remained steady for the state, the Capital City's high school has diversified in a big way. Today, more than 10% of the school's 1,600 students are or were refugees resettled from some 66 countries. As part of a new program at the school, immigrant students and their teacher are working to promote acceptance. The students are going classroom to classroom, educating other students about their cultures and sharing their stories. From New Hampshire Public Radio's Word of Mouth, Jimmy Gutierrez reports. There's a new lesson plan at Concord High, and it couldn't have come at a better time. Pretend pretend it's not a microphone. It's talking. You do that so well. Do you want me to stand behind you? I do, bow. That's Anna Marie Di Pasquale. The kids call her Miss D, and Renee Dutier, a senior at the school. We're heading to a classroom as part of Miss D's newest project, Travel Around the World. The idea is simple. Ex-refugee students share their cultures and traditions firsthand. What do you have prepared? Um, I'm going to talk about my lovely country 
and tells them about my culture, the school, the uh, weather. Presentations I checked included a tasting of carrot halwa, a surprisingly sweet Pakistani dessert, the story of struggle behind the Burindi flag. I even learned how to say, how are you? Boni. And I'm fine in Lingala. No, malamu. No, malamu. Yeah. (laughs) I'll be the first to say that language can be tricky, something that Renee has had to master throughout her childhood. Born in the Democratic Republic of Congo, her parents fled war to Rwanda when she was eight. For the next four years, Rwanda was home. Then her house was intentionally set on fire with some family still inside. Neighbors helped everyone escape, but her parents were badly burned. After that, they moved to Uganda, and in 2012, they were resettled in Concord, New Hampshire. Renee, now 14, was fluent in trauma and three languages. Today, in her fourth language, she casually stands in front of 20 students talking all about Rwanda. She tells classmates how some of the schoolgirls have to shave their heads. She shares music and talks about the ultimate equalizer, food. We have to buy a fresh chicken, like actually a fresh one that is the real chicken. So you have to kill it. (laughs) (laughs) You have to kill it and cook it. I can't even kill like bugs and stuff. Renee is an expert in everything that relates to her culture. We have so many students that are experts in their own experience, so why not share all that expertise in the classroom? And then it benefits the whole school. Miss D has an over-caffeinated vibe that comes to life in her eyes. She says her role working with the refugee kids is to give voice to their needs. It's something she's been addressing since she started six years ago. First couple months I was here, I went into the um, social studies classrooms and we talked about how do we move beyond stereotypes. We get to know each other. We share each other's stories. That's the motivation for Be the Change, a student-led social club which brings refugee students and American students together to learn from each other. The club also speaks to Concord's transformation over the last 20 years as a resettlement site. In 1995, Concord schools were 97% white. Today, almost 20% of the district's students are non-white. While taking in refugees has always been contentious, a new tone was struck this past election season. Here's President-elect Trump at a rally last year in Keene, New Hampshire. I'm putting the people on notice that are coming here from Syria as part of this mass migration, that if I win, if I win, they're going back. They're going back. I'm telling you. They're going back. In the 10 days following Trump's election, the Southern Poverty Law Center reported close to 900 hate crimes, most coming in K-12 schools, colleges, and universities. With calls for closed borders and whispers of a Muslim registry, there are some students in the majority speaking up. Instead of just seeing, like, Sana, one of our um, Muslim students, wearing her hijab and just making assumptions, when you actually learn about her culture and her religion, it's actually a lot different than how, you know, the media and, like, politics make it out to be. That's Juliet Greenwood, a senior at the high school. Growing up in Concord, Juliet says she wasn't exposed to much diversity. As a seventh grader, she was invited to one of Miss D's multicultural events and for the first time found herself in the minority. Nobody spoke any English, but I was trying really hard to entertain people. And that's when Miss D said that I would be a great social worker. And that was our first kind of interaction. A few years later, as a sophomore, she experienced something in her lunchroom that took diversity from interesting to important. 
I mean, it's noticeable in the cafeteria, the white students sit at tables, and then the Nepali students sit at tables, then the more African students sit at tables, and there were some pretty derogatory comments from my friend group, and I kind of separated myself. Juliet says she confronted her friends and their language. Now she's one of the leaders of the Be the Change Club. But I find my role is really helping the white community, the enormous white community at this school, use me as an example. And to get the different like international students to see me as like an accepting white student <laughs> and not one of the many that maybe aren't as accepting. It was a matter of minutes before I ran into some of those not as accepting kids. In an empty hallway, a group of white boys at an open locker whistled and made monkey noises at Ms. D's Afro-Caribbean-American intern, Kaylin, and myself. Kaylin didn't flinch. Later during the presentations, in front of multiple teachers and a reporter, a couple of fresh-faced white teen boys in polo hats mocked the club and their students standing only feet away. I asked Ms. D if this was the norm. So I will say that... Um, for the most part, Concord High School is a super welcoming place. Today's an anomaly. You know, today <laughs> today was, was an anomaly. And it was, um, today was just an anomaly. Um, I think that's, education is the answer to everything. Combating racism isn't the toughest thing Renee's ever faced. But when international students first arrive, struggle is common. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know nobody, matter of fact. I used to go home and feel so bad. I would tell my parents, I'm like, I'm not going back to school. But they're like, well, you got to. Remember, back home, you didn't go to school. You got to go to school. You got to push yourself. So I kept pushing myself, and hey, look at me now. There's a lot of tears in my office. I need to give them a space to make sure that they know that they're going to be okay. They will get the language, that people are going to love them and welcome them here. And this is their school. While learning the language is a crucial point of entry, Ms. D tells me that there's also language that needs to be unlearned. Because when I first arrived, same thing, that term refugee, language is powerful, right? And I was mm -hmm. like, what? You're not refugees anymore. When you call some people, yes, it would be kind of like not cool to be called like that. But otherwise, hey, we are used to it. We, we like heard it over and over again. It's like a song in our ears. Ms. D's current tour through the school has served almost as a PSA that the students from 66 different countries speaking 44 different languages are no longer refugees. This is their home. They're new Americans. It's also allowed her to indulge her own interests. I love to travel. I love food. I love to learn new things. I think we just figured out where travel around the world came from. You just wanted to travel cheap. That's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. I don't have to deal with the jet lag. <laughs> it's not, I get the same food. It's exactly right. <laughs> Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Kion Wolf, Alex Hoyer, and St. Louis Public Radio. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. And thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, 
and WNPR.